Hi, the following podcast is an audio recording from our webinar on developing great frontline sales managers. Thank you for listening. We are passionate about uh, sales management training. For some of you, uh, this may be your first SRG webinar, so I'll just give a quick overview of our firm and how we work with clients. Basically, we're all about uh, improving the effectiveness of sales organizations. When we think about frontline sales teams, it's really around foundational and advanced selling skills and creating customized training programs that really result in sustainable sales improvement for our clients, as well as negotiation programs. Sales coaching is a huge growth area and ties very closely to today's topic on developing frontline sales managers, which is actually the fastest growing part of, of our business. So Ray, before we get into the um, actual presentation, I'd love to, you know, as you said, let's get some participation from our today's participants. And if we could just bring up a quick poll, we'd love you to rate your sales management training program. So just within your own organization, how would you rate your current uh, sales management training program? And while we're ready for the responses, and we'll post them in just a minute, uh, Ray, just kind of give me your perspective on sales management training and why there's so much interest in this topic right now. Sure. Well, you know, and we'll have this theme throughout the, the presentation, but I think what we often find is you know, we're promoting our reps into management, and unfortunately, we don't always give them uh, the, the infrastructure and support that they need to perform well. And, you know, quite frankly, those who succeed either are figuring it out oftentimes, or maybe they have a great mentor that shows them the way. But um, unfortunately, with uh, a lot of the, the organizations we work with, there really hasn't been much infrastructure in place to help support them because the focus has really been on sales and sales training in the past. Right. I think there's an assumption often that if someone is really good at sales, they're going to uh, be very successful in sales management. And we'll speak to that in just a moment. But I will give a plug for Ray's latest blog post on does it make sense to uh, promote your top seller into a sales management position. And if you are interested in that, it should be the top blog right now on the SRG blogs or requested at info at sales readiness group. We'll be happy to send you a link. So, Ray, with that, why don't we uh, just kind of see what our audience is, is saying about their programs. Sure. I'll go ahead and end the poll and broadcast the results here. And, you know, it's really interesting. Um, out of our participants today, we have a nice-sized group here, but uh, nobody rated their, their program as outstanding, and I guess maybe we could anticipate that. Uh, if it's outstanding, maybe they wouldn't be attending the webinar today, but maybe they'd be uh, running the webinar. Well, a absolutely. You know, but the, the vast majority, um, you know, 50% says it needs improvement, and uh, another 12% uh, says it needs considerable improvement. So. Uh, or, or there's no program in place. So if we look at that, 75% of the respondents um, ha have some room for improvement, and uh, hopefully we can share some thoughts today that uh, might enlighten how you can do that. Great. So thank you again for joining us and for participating uh, in that poll. So I'd love to uh, just kind of think a little bit about, you know, what's so hard about being a frontline sales manager? You know, this ties really to the blog post that I just mentioned and just some of the other work that you've seen with clients. Ray, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think it is one of the, the most challenging positions in the organization. It's one that, uh, that you know, we've served in in the past, and I, I think it is one that it's very visible, and in fact, you can't control all of the things that uh, are within your domain. So you are maybe for the first time having to get work done through others, and there's challenges associated with that, and everybody looks at the sales numbers. So, you know, the first 
place they turn to is the sales manager to see why isn't the team performing, why, why isn't your team putting up the numbers that are required. Um, but at the same time, you're managing salespeople, which have their own unique challenges, and a lot of times you have to manage your own uh, activities on top of that. Uh, some people are in a sell-do model or sell-manage model where they're carrying their own bag, and you know that can be very challenging because they're they're trying to manage essentially their peers while at the same time uh, being responsible for their own quota. You, you use a term when you were describing salespeople uh, as unique. Uh, tell me kind of just a little bit what you mean by unique. I, I, I realize that a lot of salespeople are really high maintenance, but uh, they have different personalities. What have you seen in the past? Well, sure. And actually, this is uh, referred to in the blog, Norman, that you mentioned at the start about some of those characteristics that we may look for and hire for in a salesperson. And some of them translate, but some of them may not translate so well into the management position. And things I'm talking about is that hard-charging, motivating, self-starter mentality that we really look for in our star salesperson may actually work against them a little bit as a sales manager because now they really do need to step back into more of a coaching and mentoring role, and they may need to have a little bit more patience uh, than they're used to in the past. Uh, interesting. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this the trajectory for sales managers. So you know, the most common place for sales managers are people who've moved up through the sales ranks. Anecdotally, we've surveyed our clients. Probably well over fifty percent of managers came up through the sales ranks. Just you know, maybe what that trajectory looks like. Sure, I think that is the case. You know, you you find that good sales rep, and oftentimes their performance is being judged based on their attainment of quota. And so if somebody's knocking it out of the park, you say, wow, this person really is a star. Let's promote them to management. And what we haven't stopped to think about is, are they really a good fit? And is that the best for the organization to promote them? And so you know, the salesperson may think also, wow, this is going to be great. I'm moving up in the organization. They may not realize they may take a pay cut to do that uh, for, for some time. And unfortunately, it's just one of those misalignments where you know expectations may not be appropriate uh, for that first promotion. Having said that, I would like to add, I think most sales managers started out in sales, and most as they make that transition, they can make fantastic sales managers, but there's training and support and coaching and other things that need to go along with that transition. I think that ties really well into this model that you have that we'll put up on the screen from Ram Sharan. He's a great thought leader. Uh, I have his book on my desk. I, I refer to it often. And really, when applied to sales, you know, it shows kind of the um, transition that a salesperson can make over the course of their career. And you know, Ray, do you want to just kind of walk us through the model and what those, uh, those U-turns represent? Sure. Well, you know, just as we were describing, you, you hire the salesperson, they start uh, to hit their stride, they're, they're improving along the way, and then when they hit that first, what we refer to as a pivot, that first turn to sales management, really all the expectations change. And so, again, this common theme of it is a different role. And if you follow the pipeline up, you see that, you know, then they get comfortable as a sales manager and maybe they get promoted to sales VP and now they're taking on more of an executive role and the expectations and metrics and behaviors associated with that change. And then ultimately they may become an organizational or, or a, a business leader. And again, that's essentially a new position. And I think we have to keep this in mind that the role changes, the expectations change, and the skills change along this way. And we can't expect that the 
person who's a superstar on the sales role is necessarily going to make each of those pivots uh, successfully and, and be prepared to do that. Right. So I think when you look at those U-turns, they really represent promotions. And that I would argue that that first turn from salesperson to sales manager is probably the most difficult pr promotion because it really goes from being an individual performer. If you're in sales, you may be part of a team, but it's really about the, the skills that you bring to the table. Whereas when you go to management, as you mentioned, you may have to step back a little bit because it really is about achieving success through others. And so while all these career changes may be somewhat challenging, this first one I think poses the most challenges. And it ties to a, you know, a sports analogy that we'll use where you know, the best players don't always make the best coaches, you know, just by illustration. Uh, maybe go back a slide real quickly. Uh, you know, here's two, uh, you know, coaches. One uh, who was, you know, Isaiah Thomas played 13 years in the NBA, 11 times All-Star, but really wasn't all that successful. Had just a little bit less than a 500 record, 187 wins, 223 losses as a coach. And you take someone else like Phil Jackson and, you know, 13 seasons, no All-Star appearances, but has over a 700% uh, winning uh, percentage. So we're not saying, you know, that you necessarily want to promote mediocre performers into managers. What we're real saying is it's a different skill set. And, you know, I think this next chart kind of illustrates some of the differences and kind of makes it a little bit more tangible. So getting away from the analogy and kind of looking at actual skills, salespeople generally have to be pretty darn good on the skills on the left-hand chart of this, uh, you know, left-hand side of this chart, whether that's practice prospecting skills, questioning skills to qualify or to identify opportunities, have to be really good at listening, should have really good interpersonal and communication skills, should have the skills to manage feedback and manage objections, to, to, to gain commitment. They also need to be knowledgeable on their offering. And all those are important when you're a manager because certainly you want to be able to coach on those skills, your sales reps, but now you have all these new skills. You have to be able to set team goals and priorities. You have to recruit and select new people if you have openings or you're growing. Uh, you have to be able to coach, which we'll, we'll talk about more, manage performance, lead and motivate, manage your time. And you're also expected to know more than just about your products. You, when you go along, you want to add value on those sales calls. You're also really look to for your industry expertise. So we're certainly not saying that salespeople will not become great managers. We're just saying they need to develop a new skill set. And that ties to today's uh, title. So, Ray, what are some of the common pitfalls we've seen with, you know, new sales managers? Right. Well, again, I think, you know, you get anointed into that new position. You're excited about it. But, you know, frankly, there often isn't a good understanding of what that position is. In fact, we have our clients all the time say, hey, can you help define for us what a sales manager should do? How should they allocate their time? What should they do? And, you know, I think that's really critical that, now they have their own time to take care of, and they have to be responsible for the individuals on their team. And so they don't often have the sales management skills that are necessary to perform all those activities. And you know, one of the critical areas is that now as a manager, you are responsible, and one of your most important duties is developing your team. And I think what we find is typically the manager now sees that they're involved in a lot more meetings, they're reviewing a lot more reports, they have a lot more administrative duties, and you can take up your whole day just doing those activities when really your biggest contribution should be building your team so that they can be more successful in the future. Right. If you have a great team, your job as a manager becomes a lot easier. Your forecasts are more accurate. You beat your, you beat your goals. Uh, you have people that, you know, are on the right career path and, um, 
you know, with that, let's transition. Let's bring in our uh, participants again. Again, thank you all for attending. How do your sales managers allocate their time? And we know there's a lot of time constraints, and we'd love to, again, just get some feedback. Is it used for meetings and administration reports or using their time for um, coaching individual and team members? Right. Yeah, and actually you can pick up to three here uh, that you think what are their, their top ways that they allocate their time. Uh, it would be interesting to, to see what the group group says. Here. Right. You know, are they selling? Are they managing performance? And you were starting already. We can see the results before you do, and it's, it's, really, uh, it's really interesting. So we'll just give that a minute. Um, you know, Ray, anecdotally, what have you seen in terms of uh, some of the better ways to allocate time and maybe some of the things that are not, not, not so great? Well, and, and um, this is an interesting concept that, uh, that we often refer to in the training in terms of how you allocate time that's going to get you a benefit in the future. And actually, we're big Stephen Covey fans, and so the idea of you know, what's critical and important to the organization is where you should be spending your time. Sometimes what we do is we get pulled into what's urgent and important, and those things have to get done. That deal has to get closed today. That client situation has to get satisfied. But those that are critical and important, like building and training your team, are the ones you just need to really force yourself sometimes to allocate time and to do those things because those are going to reap benefits in the future. Yeah, our colleague and partner, David Covey, often calls the uh, sales management or can become the chief problem solver, and that's really not where they want to get into. They really want to empower people to start making their own decisions, start solving some of their own, own problems. So, Ray, let's kind of share the results here and maybe you can uh, walk us through what we're seeing. Yeah, this is fascinating, uh, actually, looking at today's group, um, that really, by and large, and if you look at number five and number seven here on this list, it looks like the managers are spending their time selling, and we said sometimes that's, uh, that's natural and they have to do that, and they're spending their time on administrative reporting and forecasting, where, as we're talking today, things like coaching and managing performance are, are lower down on the scale. Um, so we're spending a lot of time uh, attending meetings. We're spending time recruiting. And so it's really interesting that uh, you know, there's a real cross-section of how, how the group is spending their time. So a really interesting transition. Let's talk a little bit about how managers probably should be spending their time. And maybe more importantly, the core skill sets that managers need to have. Uh, so obviously hiring great people, so getting the right people on the bus, uh, is really important. The cost of a bad hire is really high, and we'll speak about that in a moment. Uh, managing that team, what does it really mean to manage a team and manage performance? Uh, coaching, we think, you know, we're huge fans of coaching, and coaching is different than managing. We'll kind of go through some of the distinctions there. And then leading and motivating the team. So we'll, we'll try and examine each of these areas in a little bit more detail. This is a lot of the um, concepts are based on our comprehensive sales management program, and we thought we'd just some of the interesting points from that uh, into this presentation. So with that, um, maybe we'll start with hiring, Ray. So, you know, want to get the right people on board. And, you know, it's interesting. Let's use a, another sports analogy, you know, where college coaches, and I, I didn't believe this stat when I first saw it, but college coaches spend more than half of their time recruiting, and that's because they realize that if they have the right athletes, and that's not just people with the right skills, but also people with the right mindset, the right attitude, their, their probability of winning on the field goes up dramatically. And I think that's the same with the, uh, with the sales team. And so 
I think the pitfall for managers is they, they really end up interviewing based on personality. Uh, and personality is an important attribute, but really they should be looking at, at, at competencies. Because if they hire the wrong person, there's just a lot of costs associated with the time you spent recruiting them, training them, the salary you paid them, their missed numbers, lost time. And maybe most frustrating, there's the customer risk. Customers really are annoyed when the person they're working with changes over and over again. They really value that consistency. And so I think that there's often this temptation to just kind of fill an empty seat. We know there's always pressure from upper management to fill a position. And you know we, we understand the implications of leaving it vacant. But the cost of having the wrong person is even worse than a vacancy. Well, I think that's right, Norman. And I think you know there are a lot of studies out there that look at those numbers. But you know a rule of thumb is you can spend two to three times the annual salary of a sales rep on a bad hire. So when, again, when you look at missing the numbers, when you look at the cost of hiring, training, bringing them on board, you know it, it's a very quick analysis to show that, boy, you need to get that right or it could be very costly to the organization. So what we've typically found, and uh, you know, and we'll, we'll show a model on this in a moment, is that it really comes down to finding people who have the attributes you're looking for uh, to be successful. And these attributes don't always show up on a resume. If you think about the typical resume, it kind of shows educational background, job experience, and some of the skills they have. And those are part of really putting together a great profile. But there's basically this other area called competencies that really don't show up there. And some of those competencies might be areas like work ethic or integrity. And so what we really want to focus on is training those managers on how to interview for those intangibles that may be the most important aspects that tie to success. And Ray, do you want to just kind of walk, walk through what behavior-based interviewing is about? Sure. Yeah, I think it is appropriate and, and important to identify what competencies you really are looking for. So again, this is the sales manager is looking for in their, in their salespeople. And you know, we may identify those things like, well, we need somebody who takes initiative, or we need them to be competitive, or we need to, we need to have them be, uh, have good listening skills. But you know, as you mentioned, those are things that don't jump right out on the resume. We need to figure out what those behaviors are that we can key into that will tell us whether they maybe have that competency or, or tendency. Right. So I think sometimes companies say, okay, well, this all sounds great in theory, but how are we going to really identify those competencies? And I don't think it's all that difficulty. If you look at you know, difficult, if you look at your top 10 or 20 percent of performers and say, what are the commonalities that you see in their top, you know, in your top 10 or 20 percent? My guess is things like work ethic and motivation are some of the things that make a huge difference in terms of top performers versus marginal performers. So Ray, just trying to continue the thought, um, you know, in terms of these competencies really manifest themselves in behaviors. So some with a strong motivation may get to work early every single day. You know, so we want to look at, in terms of the competencies, the, the behaviors, and then those behaviors drive the interview questions. Absolutely. And so I think as we break down those competencies, we start to look at, you know, can we ask questions that will help drive out and give us a better indication? And, you know, the studies have shown that in absence of some sort of behavioral-based or competency-based interviewing, we tend to hire people that look like ourselves. And that may or may not be the best for the organization. So let's actually figure out what makes the most sense. And we like this star questioning model as a way of driving this out. So in a couple of those examples we mentioned, you know, if the competency was 
uh, that we need somebody to be very motivated in the sales position. Norman, I might ask you, I'd say, well, you know, it's really important to us that uh, we have motivated salesperson. Are you motivated? Uh, Ray, absolutely. I'm motivated. I'm here for the interview. You know, this is really uh, something I've always wanted to do. I'm very excited about the opportunity. Right. So that would be, you know, a typical response, and a good salesperson could, uh, you know, probably uh, talk their way through that. But a behavioral-based and star interviewing would then have us go through the situation, task, action, results. So I'd say, well, Norman, that's great. Can you give me a situation that maybe illustrates where you uh, demonstrated that motivation? And, you know, that's great. Um, what were the tasks that you actually performed uh, as you took part in that situation? And what actions specifically were you involved in? I don't want to know what the team did, but what did you do in that situation? And ultimately, what was the result? You know, did you uh, solve that, that problem? You know, if it's a new hire, this may be something they did in college. This may be a part of a sports team. But we can really drive into that competency to see, did they solve problems? Did they overcome adversity? Did they do things that we're really looking for them to do in this position? So this questioning method has really two strong benefits. One is that we're really drilling down to see if someone possesses the attribute. It also slows down the interview process because it forces the manager to become an active listener because they're asking probing questions. So it's very tempting for a manager, again, they have limited time, to kind of basically check off a list of questions based on the responses. For example, if Ray asked me if I was motivated, I said yes, then he could just check yes, but that doesn't really say it's motivation, that I'm motivated. So using the start questioning process and having the right questions in advance of the interview, because ultimately, even if you have a great HR organization, the final interview is probably going to rest with the line manager and they need to really be able to probe and discover whether they possess those competencies. So, Ray, with that, let's, let's move to the next attribute, which is really, you know, managing. So you've hired the right people. Now, how are you going to manage, manage that team? And so what we start, want, start by looking at is, you know, what are some of the characteristics of high-performing sales organizations? And so in a high-performing organization, you have what's called a, you know, defined communicate clear performance expectations. It's part about a performance partnership. It's not just about the manager. So the manager really has to emphasize the supportive dialogue where there's contribution both from the manager and from the salespeople. People are accountable for behaviors and results. So managers often become hyper-focused on results. But results may be very misleading because they're a trailing indicator you really want to look at behaviors because that's a um, leading indicator. An example we often use is uh, is the example of uh, of weight loss. Uh, weight loss in and of itself isn't going to occur just because um, someone says they want to lose weight, but the you know the key behaviors may be diet and exercise. So if you think about sales, some of the key might be prospecting, uh, first time meetings, uh, solutions dialogues. Uh, proposal generation, what are really those behaviors that are going to drive future results? And the other part of a, you know, a performance partnership is everyone's seeking feedback. Everyone's looking to get, get better. So the manager is not this dictator that's kind of ruling over a sales team, but they're really managing in a very collaborative way while they're still holding people accountable. And so I think really the key is make it a supportive dialogue that's based on trust and accountability. Yeah, and I think we've, we may all have experience in those organizations and maybe good and bad examples of those, but I think we can see where that is in place. You hear people saying like, 
hey, let's debrief. How did that go? Or can you give me some feedback on that? And it's a safe environment where they're actually encouraged to do that as opposed to one of those where, well, I don't want to ask because I don't want a black mark on my record or I don't want to hear what he has to say. I don't care anyway. Um, this is all about improving just like, again, you would on the sports field. Right. So if you look at this idea of you know, results and behaviors, we like to use an example that a result is something you could take a snapshot of. It's something that's happened in the past. The team made 117% of quota. The behaviors are the observable actions of things you actually want to take a video of. So imagine you're using your, your, your mobile device. If you're going to take a snapshot, it's probably a result. If you're going to video, it's probably a behavior. So someone going out on a sales call, someone delivering a proposal, someone discussing a proposal with a customer, what are those key behaviors that, that drive results? And I know some managers will say, well, you know, I only really want to focus on results. The problem with that is, and it's really, you know, interesting, I was talking to a customer in, a, um, in an industry, I won't, I won't say what industry, where they were saying, you know, everyone on our team was well over quota and things were really going great. But all of a sudden, uh, the market started to change and most of the team was not achieving quota, only those people who were really demonstrating the behaviors. So as Ray mentioned early on, there's often a lot of factors you can't control. But so that's the, the risk of focusing on results. In a, in a hot market, everyone's results may look good. But if they aren't demonstrating those behaviors on a consistent basis, you're not likely to sustain those results. I think that's right, Norman. I think the other thing to look at there is results are really backward looking by definition. Mm -hmm. We can only get the result after it's been accomplished. And we can say, did they make their numbers last quarter or not? What it doesn't do is really predict or suggest how we're going to make it this time. So behaviors are more forward-looking or more leading indicators. And so we want to look at those behaviors and reinforce what over time are going to be positive and consistent changes that are going to produce the results we're looking for. You know, you mentioned the example about weight loss, and I think this is a you know, pretty simple one. Um, you know, maybe one that we can identify with. But if I step on the scale every Friday, and the scale doesn't move, I'm going to get frustrated. I'm managing to that result, and the result isn't changing. That indicator isn't changing. However, if I start looking at the behaviors and say, well, you know what, maybe I need to eat healthier food and less, less of it, and I need to manage another behavior, which is the amount of calories I'm burning. So I need to get to the gym. Maybe I need to go on a run. Those are things now that I can manage day to day that hopefully when I step on that scale are going to produce the result that I'm looking for. But just hoping that the, the metric changes uh, isn't going to produce the result we're looking right. for. Right, and we use the term behaviors because that's really something that's often used in learning and development. From a line management standpoint, you could also think of those as kind of the key performance indicators. So when we think about the performance management system, Ray, you know, at a high level, what would be you know, some of the areas that you would, you would want to look at? Sure. So you know, I think we've kind of built this... Uh, the, the expectation here as we've gone along that first you want to understand what's important. So you want to communicate and, and monitor those success factors. So let's actually identify that. Let's identify the behaviors that are going to produce the results, how many calls, how many visits, how many proposals, what the, whatever those may be. And then this is where it's really interesting. Let's analyze when there's a gap. If there's a gain, that means we're exceeding. That's great. Let's actually reinforce that and make sure we're celebrating that. But if there's a gap, let's dig into the underlying causes. And unfortunately, in management, we often jump to the action, say, oh, I know how to fix this. But what we reinforce and through our training programs is say, well, once we've identified that gap, let's really 
try to determine the underlying cause or causes. Sometimes there are multiple influences. And now let's build an action plan to resolve that. Could be training, could be coaching, could be counseling. There are a number of different things we can do. So I'll just give a quick personal example where we often want to jump to the action. Uh, you know, recently, you know, live in a home and there was a water damage and I didn't know where the heck the water was coming from. And it, the natural reaction would have been to uh, just assume that it was uh, a leak from a, you know, and shut off the water main and wait till a plumber arrives. Ultimately, that wasn't the cause. The cause was coming from an air conditioning unit. So I think we have to really, and it took someone about seven hours to diagnose what the, where the problem was coming from, but if we understand the source of the problem, we can figure out what action uh, to take, and thank goodness it wasn't a uh, plumbing line. It was something a lot simpler to, 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 to fix. You know, this manifests itself, and this is a system that is probably overly complicated to go through, um, you know, in detail here. This is kind of a lot of the, the content from the managing performance system. But at the high level, if we look at the headers, it really gets to, you know, what are the critical success factors? So that would be in column one. Generally, in most organizations, there's two to three critical success factors. Uh, they could be things like uh, sales volumes, selling skills, and account growth. You can then say, okay, if we looked at those, if we blow that up a little bit, it might just show a little bit better. Sure, there you go. So there again, again, we can look at account penetration, uh, new business or selling skills. And then based on that, we can say, okay, what are those key performance indicators that tie to those areas? So again, that would be the second part of the system. So we have these key success factors. If we look at something, let's just say, um, uh, Selling skills, we can look at things like call planning, identifying priorities, uh, basically positioning benefits and presenting benefits to customers and managing objections. Those would be some of the KPIs that would tie to the success factor of selling skills. Now, let's say someone wasn't really doing a great job in terms of identifying priorities. So they weren't doing a great job of asking uh, the right questions uh, and really creating the right dialogue with customers you would then want to say, okay, well, what's the underlying cause associated with that? And so if we look at the causes, you know, is it that they don't have the right attitude, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the motivation, they don't have skills? Those are all things that are first for there that would be intrinsic to the salesperson. But the underlying causes may also rest with the managers. They may not understand expectations or maybe not getting a lot of feedback, which would tie to coaching. So if the manager went and observed that, they could offer some suggestions as to what they might do differently in the future. And then this really gets to the fourth aspect. So communicated the critical success factors. We've identified what are those key behaviors or KPIs that tie to them. There was a gap in performance. We analyzed, we analyzed the underlying causes. And now that could, take, could give us a source of different actions to take. So again, this is just a high-level view of a system. And this has two benefits. One is it provides, as the name implies, a systematic approach for behavior-based uh, performance management. It also, if you have many managers, kind of ensures consistency from manager to manager, and so it makes it a lot easier for a sales director or a VP of sales to have conversations around performance with their various managers. So we used a lot of time there, but I think it's really valuable uh, insight because performance management is such a critical skill equally important is the skill of coaching salespeople. And so, Ray, do you want to take us through a little bit on coaching? Sure. And, you know, we're defining coaching here as the ongoing process of, of analyzing and discussing performance. 
with the objective of improving and reinforcing skills. So what, what we mean by that is there's people talk about deal coaching and pipeline coaching and other types. What we're really focused on for, for this discussion today is around performance and how do you improve those skills and, and knowledge that they need to do the job. And I think it's, it's really a critical area and one of those, as we said, critically important, um, not necessarily urgent, but can have a huge impact on the organization. Yeah, and I think it's the right area to focus on, Ray, because typically the sales manager is pretty good at deal coaching, especially they came up with the sales ranks. They know how to offer ideas on account strategy and advancing opportunities through the pipeline. Where they really struggle is moving from the management to the coaching role, where they can really focus on, you know, going back to the example I gave of identifying priorities, how to have a salesperson have a more insightful conversation with a customer where they can really understand what the customer's priorities are. So you've got an interesting slide here kind of showing some of the benefits associated with coaching. Where did this come from? Yeah, so um, this is actually from Chief Sales Officer Insights, CSO Insights Magazine, and it's a study uh, that we partnered with them to to put together, and they looked at coaching in the organizations and said, of those where coaching is exceeding expectations, how are the reps doing? And what's really interesting is there's a much higher percentage of reps making or exceeding quota in those areas that they're doing a better job coaching. And so, you know, I think you can look at the numbers, and if there's a 10% swing, wow, if, if you can improve and you can get the reps to now exceed, manage or exceed quota just by doing some coaching, that's probably the best return you can get for your time in terms of uh, making your sales numbers. Absolutely. I don't think it's in this particular uh, presentation. It might be. Uh, but, you know, we generally think managers should be spending 25 to 40% of their time uh, on, on sales coaching. It's a really important activity that uh, allows you to achieve full potential with your team. I think what's for the audience again, I guess, you know, everyone kind of knows we look at search terms on Google, sales coaching is a is a huge search term, and it's also a buzz in our industry. If you look at, you know, ASD or now ATD, or you look at trainingindustry.com, and you look at, you know, sales coaching or Selling Power Magazine, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's a huge area of importance, but yet a lot of managers really struggle there. So we'd love to just get, you can just type in the text bar. Uh, and we'd love to kind of get your ideas why, you know, what are the challenges that you think managers have when it comes to coaching sales reps? Yeah, I think it's always interesting to hear, and we see people uh, starting to type in here, why they are challenged because, um, you know, it's one of those things we, we kind of know. Maybe it's a bit like uh, flossing and going to the dentist. We know we should do it, but it's, uh, you know, not something that we're inclined to do um, and we find that a lot of times they, do, they really aren't sure exactly what to do. So some of the things we're saying here, you know, the first three all tied to time, and then I think, uh, you know, uh, Wanda's comment here on what to coach on. So not only a matter of time, but if they even have the time, do they know what they should be coaching on? Uh, they're not comfortable doing it. They don't understand, you know, how to properly do it. So we, we often shy away from things we don't really know how to do, which is why there's such, so much investment on coaching programs. And I think actually that's a great one, Norman, I'll comment on because I think you all often hear, oh, you should be coaching, but nobody's really defined in the organization what they mean or given a, a recipe for how, how it should be done. Right, and I think uh, Alex here has one you know, on providing timely feedback and getting buy-in. You know, there, it really does take a coaching culture. Not every organization has a coaching culture where 
everyone gets coaching. So again, we use another sports analogy. The best golfers in the world, uh, you know, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have their own coaches. They're not just saying I'm content with my game the way it is. As they prepare for tournaments, they're working with coaches. So really some interesting ideas here. Uh, you know, in the interest of time, we'll, we'll, we'll close that off and just kind of share a few of the things that, you know, we see as common coaching challenges. Sure. You know, I think we we hit on a, a lot of these themes and, and you all came up with a, a lot of great ideas. You know, the first was was there several times. They they don't know how to coach. They're, they're really not uh, sure of how to coach. They're not spending enough time coaching the right reps. And so this is one uh, concept that we bring up quite a bit in our program, which is if you're spending all your time coaching those that are struggling the most, you're not going to get the best return for your coaching time. Those people may need remedial training. They may actually be in the wrong position, or they may have some other issues going on that coaching alone is not going to satisfy. But if we spend our time there, um, it's going to take away from maybe that middle group that we could really help to raise, and we'll, we'll get to that shortly, as well as our star performers. So maybe we're focusing on the wrong folks. Maybe we don't have a consistent process that we're following. We said we don't know how to do it, so we're reluctant. And, you know, oftentimes coaching is seen as uh, remedial or as part of a performance improvement plan. It's only happening to those that are really struggling, as opposed to, Norman, as you mentioned, the best athletes in the world typically have a whole host of coaches, and it's seen as something really positive. You should get a coaching because that's going to help elevate right. your game. A simple way to know if you go into an organization and quite often CEOs are working with a, with a coach, it's a pretty good bet that type of company has a coaching culture. Doesn't mean the CEO doesn't mean that to have a coaching culture, the CEO has to be working with a coach. But basically, that should be a, a view that getting feedback is a positive. You know, Ray, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, where they should be spending their time. So within our program, I think it's pretty common in other coaching programs, we, we really want to provide managers with the tools to basically analyze their current teams as to whether someone is a lower performer. We're not just talking about sales numbers. We're really talking about skills, a high performer, or a medium performer. And basically, the highest ROI is based on being able to move the middle. So that would be about 65% of your time. High performers, ironically, should get more time than low performers. One point of clarification that's not exactly clear from this chart is that new hires really should go to the top of the chart. New hires uh, should not be in any of these buckets. Maybe, you know, new hire could be defined as first six months or so, depending on the length of your sales cycle. But generally between the first six and first 12 months, a very high ROI associated with coaching there. That coaching may look a little bit different. It may be almost demonstrating a skill, so they can really learn the skills by watching. With your established performers, your, your skills are going to be a lot more by observation. And just kind of share what that looks like. We can kind of share with you our coaching model. Again, there are multiple coaching models on the market. We're biased. We like this model, which gets to you know planning for a coaching visit. That gets to the assessment that would occur uh, before you even allocate time. Pre-call briefing. So really, what's going on in this account? Where have we been? Who are the decision makers? Well, what have been our successes? What have been our challenges? What's our goal for this particular call? So oftentimes, we find that salespeople can't really articulate what the goal is associated with a with a sales call. We want them to be able to articulate if this call goes well, the customer will take this action. So the way, you know, it's quite often I think there's a tendency to walk out, oh great meeting. Well what does that really mean? It means that the that the customer is taking the action you would hope they would take going into that meeting. 
and it's nice to have primary and secondary objectives. Coaching is a lot about observing and staying focused on the coaching objectives. We recommend not more than two to three. There's nothing more demoralizing to a salesperson than hearing after call that there was 10 areas for improvement. They can really focus on the two or three. And so if you want coaching to be successful, you go with the two or three areas that you think need the most improvement, and that's really where you focus your observation. Not so you wouldn't look at the others, but when you provide feedback and you provide that coaching, uh, you conduct a coaching conference, you really want to start by what they did well, and then you want to have the salesperson kind of share their view because they may actually be a harsher critic of the call than you would be. So you really want to help lead them in some self-discovery. They can't get there on their own. Then you want to be able to kind of share some thoughts and ultimately having the tools to follow up so that coaching becomes part of the rhythm. And they really, you know, you know that coaching is successful when the salesperson values it because you're going to help them close more deals and make more money. So if the salesperson is valuing the coaching, it's because it's not coming across as a critique. It's really coming across as something that can help them be more successful, not only in their current position, but in their, but in their careers. Yeah, and I think it's great to have that follow-up plan. You know, often we run into situations, and we may all have been in that, where, you know, the coaching looks like a 30-second conversation in the elevator, or maybe you get a few minutes in the car, you know, on the way back from, from the sales call, but it's not structured, and unfortunately there isn't a lot of follow-up. So you find yourself having the same conversation week after week or month after month, um, because there's no real action. And what we're suggesting is you identify those one or two key skill areas that you think are going to make the biggest difference. And then as you do that debrief, you identify some clear actions that you're going to take. Maybe it's some additional training. Maybe it's some role playing that you can do on the spot to replay that. Um, so you can really work on improving those skills because that's going to have the greatest impact on their overall performance. You know, one question that often comes up, you know, it says observe the sales call. You know, probably a third of our work today is done with inside sales team. The same model applies. We just change the word observe to listen, uh, but the same skills are involved. Ray, let's kind of touch on, you know, we're, we're hiring the right people. We're doing a good job of managing performance. We're allocating 25 to 40% of our time coaching. We're coaching the right people, so we get a higher ROI. I would describe those as all kind of core management functions that I almost say would be, you know, sales management 101, but something where almost all managers would benefit. But how about the ability to lead and inspire a team? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, this is kind of that culminating piece that you've, you've hopefully built your team and you're managing the performance. But when we look at leadership, that's really about influencing their actions, motivating them, and trying to get them all pulling in the same direction. And we like to look at the sales manager as they're running their own little business. And so we should be having a vision for what we want that team to do. We have our objectives, and we're moving forward, um, you know, with helping uh, to accomplish those objectives, each team member pulling in the same direction. So I think you can look at, you know, how you differentiate between those sales manager activities. And we're not saying that uh, these are bad, but sales managers, they're more directing the reps. They're maybe reacting to some of those urgent crises. They're looking on the day-to-day -day type uh, results and hopefully helping the sales team cope, cope with change and improving their skill. But as we look at the leadership activities, um, it's really more about looking ahead, being proactive, motivating, and inspiring the team, 
and looking towards that long-term vision. And I think when you combine those two and you really come up with a powerful way of influencing your team. Absolutely. So just kind of just a little bit more in terms of a leadership model, kind of going into four areas that we think are critical to leadership. One is being able to communicate a vision. So let's say a company has a, you know, the CEO sets out a theme for 2015 or there's a new product launch and there's a vision. Well, how do you communicate that vision and, and, and translate that vision into specific goals, strategies, and tactics for your team? There's decisions you have to make on a daily basis, some decisions much more important than others. How do you use a return on investment framework? To, you know, some decisions have to be made by tomorrow. Some decisions have to be made by end of month. Sometimes you want to include others and get feedback. Sometimes you really aren't in a position to do so. So just understanding how to make the best decisions and understand that there's a certain level of risk associated with them and when does it make sense to take the risks and when should you kind of back away from risk. Influence I like. I like the term motivate better than influence, but how do you influence and motivate? Some people on your team may be in it because they really want to advance in their careers. Some people may be, you know, mainly uh, motivated by money. Some people by autonomy. Some people by other responsibilities. So being able to make a personal connection with each uh member of your team, and then not forgetting about yourself that you continually need to grow your own skills just to advance in your career. So maybe you would be able to take that next pivot if we go back to the, you know, and think back about the Ram Sharam model. You know, don't want to just be a sales manager over time. would love to become a regional manager or a director or maybe a VP over time. So how am I going to become uh, more effective and continue to grow in my career? Right. And I think, you know, these are really important for that career development because, they're all things that are a little longer-term, higher-level uh, higher activities. And when you think about motivation, this may be the first time that a sales manager has really been presented with that idea that, well, people are motivated differently than I am. I may be motivated by doing a really good job, but others may be motivated by getting that recognition, by getting that certification, um, by just mastering a new task or skill. Right, and I think that there are really good diagnostic tools to be able to think about and help managers identify. Uh, and one of the best diagnostic tools is very simple. Have a good dialogue and open dialogue and ask people what's important to them uh, in, you know, in their job, what are they looking to achieve. Hey, Ray, we're kind of bumping up against our time limit. A couple of things I'd offer is, again, if anyone would like a copy of the slide deck or the uh, recording, info at salesreadiness.com. I'd also like to kind of just share a couple of takeaways. We did cover a lot of ground relatively quickly. Management skills are different than selling skills. Selling skills are predominantly about individual contributor and how you interface with clients. Management predominantly about success, driving success through others. Training managers has a high return on investment. And the reason being is the average manager has somewhere between six and ten direct reports, so you're kind of getting this wonderful leverage. And if you think about, you know, key management skills, those fall in those four buckets, you know, under hiring, building the sales team, getting the right people, managing their performance. Again, we want to focus on the behaviors that drive results. And if there is a behavior gap, analyzing the causes so we can take the right action. Coaching a team, so really helping that team become better in their core selling skills developing coaching plans for each member, and ultimately leading and motivating a sales team. We'd love to also share with you more about our comprehensive sales management program. If you're interested in learning more about how you could bring these type of programs into your sales organization, uh, if you have questions, you know, contact us. We're here. We'd love to hear from you either via email, uh, call us, follow us. Uh, we're publishing a lot of blogs. So, uh, 
and we'd love to have a conversation and continue this conversation. With that, um, Ray, I think we're ready to wrap up. Thank you, and thank everyone for uh, attending today's uh, webinar. Yeah, enjoyed the discussion. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for participating, and uh, we look forward to follow-up discussions. Thank you.